Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Todd Kerstetter. Dr. Kerstetter is a professor of history at Texas Christian University and is the author of Flood on the Tracks, Living, Dying, and the Nature of Disaster in the Elkhorn River Basin, which came out in 2018 with Texas Tech University Press as part of their Plains Histories series and in 2019 actually won the Best Nonfiction Book Award from the Nebraska Center for the Book. Welcome to the New Books Network, Todd. Thank you, Stephen. It's nice to be here, and thanks for having me. To begin, why don't we just hear a little bit about you? What is your background, and especially how did you become interested in history as a field of study and as a career? Sure. Um, I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, right on the shores of Lake Erie, which I guess normally wouldn't be of much interest to people, except I think it plays into why we're here today and talking about this particular book. And I uh, grew up there. I went to college at Duke in North Carolina, where I majored in political science and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, When college ended, it was like I got the hang of it, and they kicked me out and said it was over. So I did a lot of different things, ranging from waiting tables, uh, playing in a band, um, doing freelance journalism, and ended up uh, doing newspaper reporting. And none of those things really worked out, and I really would get um, kind of out of sorts every May and June when I had to keep going to work all the time. And I realized that I I missed the academic schedule and being free in the summers and and having a lot more control over uh, my life. And uh, I chose political science as an undergraduate major because I thought that would help me with law school, and uh, that, as, as you can tell, didn't pan out. And another element in that equation was that uh, both my parents were teachers. So I grew up in a a teaching household and very much accustomed to the academic calendar. Uh, And my dad was a high school history teacher. And all of that led to us taking some really wonderful summer vacations where we would load up the car and go places for three, four weeks at a time. And uh, frequently stop at museums. Uh, I loved reading history books. Frequently at the museums, I'd pick up books about history of the places where we were visiting. And uh, the trip that made the biggest impression on me was the summer of 1976. We drove from Cleveland West across uh, the prairies, out across Iowa, Nebraska, into Colorado. And the, the landscape just floored me. Uh, It was so unlike anything uh, that I'd seen in the east. The part of Ohio where I'm from looks a lot like New England. Uh, And to be out on the plains where there were no trees and and grass for as far as you could see or corn for as far as you could see uh, really made an impression on me and reminded me of uh, how when I was little, my parents had read to me from the Little House on the Prairie books and other Western adventures that uh, really captured my attention. And then to be out on the landscape and, and see it uh, and be humbled by it and, and try to imagine what it must have been like to be someone uh, in the 1800s and traveling west in a wagon train really grabbed me. 
And that continued as we went through the Rocky Mountains and saw places like Yellowstone and Yosemite. Uh, it, it, it just really fascinated me. Um, but for practical reasons, or so I thought, as an undergraduate, I figured I'd be heading to law school or some, something you could make a living at other than history. Uh, but then after trying all those different jobs that I mentioned, um, I decided I'm going I'm to take a chance at doing what was really strongly in my heart, which was read history and study about history. Um, so I applied to the University of Nebraska and thought I was going to go scratch that Western history itch and, and did. Uh, started graduate school in the fall of 1990 and worked with John Wonder in the history department there. And he got me into uh, not only Western history, but introduced me to environmental history. Um, and I was very fortunate by the time I, I got through to, to get a job here at TCU. And I've been here more or less ever since uh, 1997. So it, it worked out delightfully. And I, uh, I still think back to my first fall in graduate school after having all those jobs that were interesting, um, but not that satisfying to to show up in Lincoln and get paid to read books and go to school and study history just blew my mind. And I, I, for the most part, it still does blow my mind that I get paid to do this, although it's <clears throat> those days are a few fewer and farther between than they used to be. But that, that's a, the long story of how I got into history. You know, I ask a similar question to all of my guests, and um, especially, and this is a, a podcast on the American West. More, some books are more about the West than others that I, that I cover on this show, but but especially the ones that are really about the West by historians that identify as historians of the American West, they answer often something along those lines that you know, I, I came from somewhere further east, and the first time I went to the West, the landscape and the environment and the place of the West really grabbed me and sucked me in. I mean, I know just speaking for myself, I lived in Denver for a couple years after spending my whole life on the east coast and that really set me on a similar trajectory so yeah what the the story that you told is is a, i feel like it's, it's a real trend among we historians of the west and in another part i'll add in I, I forgot to mention this and it's a little embarrassing especially the way uh, things are right now in the profession but um, i joke with my students a lot of times that i when I make them read Frederick Jackson Turner that I'm introducing them to the man who seduced me into becoming a historian that uh, once I got my hands on the significance of the frontier in the American in American history uh, that just made such great sense to me and I was so excited to go to graduate school and study more about that stuff and the, the first semester I arrived I find out that there's essentially a civil war among American West historians between uh, Old West and Ternarian historians and the New West folks like Patty Lemerick and uh, Donald Worcester and, and so on. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've embraced that and found out how how uh, simplistic I was, but um, <laughs> Turner really played a role in this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting time to begin graduate school in the American West is right in the, the throes of the, the new Western history battles. So... Let me ask you this. Why this particular book? Why write about, as, I mean, even you say yourself in the book, a pretty minor river on the Great Plains? That's not to lessen the importance of this river, but you call it just as much. So why write a book about the Elkhorn? Right. Uh, fly over river and fly over country. Um, exactly. So I've been interested in water my whole life. That's one of the reasons I mentioned um, that I grew up in Cleveland. And not necessarily in an academic way, but I've been very... Uh, aware since I was a kid about water and water pollution. Um, and where that comes from is uh, one of my earliest memories is uh, the Cuyahoga River 
Catching on Fire in 1969. And also, uh, when I was a kid, I would go to day camp, um, and they would take us, or try to take us, to uh, some of the beaches along Lake Erie so that we could swim. And there were a couple times in the summers, this was probably early 70s, where we either had the trip canceled or we got out to where the beach was in the swimming beach, and it was closed because the water was so dirty they couldn't let us go in. Uh, so I've kind of always paid attention since then and been aware of water. And then when I got into graduate school and I was casting about for what I wanted to do, um, and I credit John Wonder, my advisor, for this, he recognized at the time, and again, this was early 90s, environmental history was still kind of coming into its own at that point. I'd never really heard about it or thought about it. And he thought it would be a good idea for me to study that and write my master's thesis on that, partly because of some general interest I had in the environment, and I think partly um, he foresaw that being maybe a nice marketing tool for me once I hit the market, that Western historians are, okay, you've got that market. If you can bring to the table some credentials in environmental history, that might make you a little bit more uh, hireable when you hit the job market. So he suggested I do an environmental history for my master's thesis, and um, he helped me settle on doing the Elkhorn River for that project. So this book is really rooted in my master's thesis. Um, and the, why the Elkhorn? Why a flyover river and flyover country? Well, I was going to graduate school in flyover country. And I, I say that, <laughs> I use that term advisedly, I guess. It, it, I, as someone who's come to love Nebraska very much, it, it offends me a little bit. Um, but it's still the way a lot of people think about it. And it, <laughs> And, and the horrors of driving across uh, Interstate 80 to get uh, to Colorado. Um, but when John and I were conceptualizing that project, he told me he thought it would be a good idea to pick a river that was entirely within one state so that I wouldn't have to deal with conflicting uh, jurisdictions and water laws and things like that. So, And I think that was a good idea. And as I've thought about it since, and, and talk to other people about projects they've done with rivers or when they've talked about trying to do research on a river and they say, oh, I want to do a big river, an important river, like the Columbia or the Mississippi or the Missouri um, or the Colorado, all of which are super important. But for somebody starting out, uh, there's an awful lot to bite off in those cases uh, because they're so big, they cross so many jurisdictions, and there's so much going on with them. And I like to think that the Elkhorn is a nice beginner river. And as a beginner historian and beginner environmental historian, I think it really helped me wrap my mind around writing a history of a, a place and a river. Um, and then when it came, and I put this book down, or this project, for probably 20 years. Um, I, it was my master's thesis, and I got an article or two out of it in journals. But I thought that was as far as it would go. And I got some interest in it. I can't remember how they got wind of it, but uh, the folks at Texas Tech who have this Plains History Series um, approached me and said, do you think there's a book in that Elkhorn project? And I said, gosh, I guess so, um, and, and looked back on it. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I, I thought, yeah, I, I could turn that into a book. Um, and I'd like to talk at some point about going back to this project after it had been a, a cold case for basically 20 years. Um, but then again, it was not just uh, a good beginner river, but for the purpose of the Plains History Series, it was perfect in that 
it begins and ends in the planes. So it's really contained and really focused in terms of what that book series uh, wants to do in terms of its subject matter. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm losing my train of thought there. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that you'd like to talk about um, what it was like to go back to a book after, or to go back to a, a, a piece after so long. And yeah, going, you know, writing something as a, an MA student, as a master's student, and then returning to it when you're uh, a, a professor, that's a pretty big change. And I, uh, what, what, what was that like? I'm interested in hearing that. Uh, well, it, it turned out to be really rewarding. Hmm. Um, uh, and, and the other thing I was thinking about came back to mind. Uh, why, why write about this river that's a minor river? Um, and it's, it's not navigable, and it's not considered important by a lot of people. Um, but it, it, as I think about it, it's kind of like, um, why would you write history about somebody other than George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or you know, powerful dead white men? There's a, there's a lot of history out there that can tell you a lot about life and a lot about the human condition that's you know, social history or you know, bottom-up history to look at it those ways. And I think the Elkhorn's a type of river that is sort of in that category, even though it's not you know, one of the, the big glamour rivers like the Mississippi or the Columbia. Um, I think you can get an awful lot out of doing a, a, a smaller history of a, a detailed history of a smaller river. I really like that formulation, thinking about it in the same way that we think about studying people. As someone who also studies a bit of a minor uh, waterway, I, I, I might steal that. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, and then going back to the point about uh, coming back to a project after it had been, been cold for 20 years easily, um, it was really gratifying um, when I resurrected this to find new sources and to go back and work on uh, some writing, and there's a pretty significant overhaul, as you might guess, on, on something that was 20 years old and written when I was just starting um, graduate school. And some of it was, I, I read some of that stuff and said, oh, that's pretty good. And golly, I, you know, maybe I was smarter than I thought I was then. But there was an awful lot of it that I read and just cringed. And it was wonderful to have a chance to go back and fix that and to see how much I had grown as a writer and as a researcher and historian. And as I dug up sources uh, that I hadn't considered and reconceptualized the thing, uh, the master's thesis was really focused just on flooding. And this book, uh, in its current incarnation, does a lot more. Um, the subtitle is Living, Dying, and the Nature of Disaster in the Elkhorn River Basin. So rather than just focus on flood history in the basin, I expanded it to try to get at how did people live with the river? How did the liver, how, how did the river shape life for the people who were in the Elkhorn Basin? How did the people who lived in the Elkhorn Basin shape the river? And then as the, the notion of natural disaster came into it, and, and this was something I hadn't really been aware of when I wrote the master's thesis because some of the works on that hadn't been put out yet, like Ted, Ted Steinberg's um, Acts of God, for, for example, um, allowed me to reconceptualize this and not only get at flooding, but how did people live with the river? How does the river, to the extent that you can identify with a, uh, a river, live with people? And then how has the conceptualization of disaster changed over time? Um, so it was, it was fun in a lot of ways to go back and redo the project. It's a whole lot better than it was <laughs> in its first <laughs> incarnation. Um, 
and it, and it was kind of interesting to have that experience uh, as I work with graduate students especially to talk to them about the importance of revision and the growth process as a historian and how important it is to, to take say a dissertation through different phases like look while you're in school you just got to get this thing done so you can get your degree then you go back and work on it and revise it and turn it into a book and there's a, a whole different process that happens at that stage and I really got to relive that in a dramatic way by taking something that I started uh, in, in the early 1990s and come back to it in the 2010s and, and see what I could do with it and how my uh, historian's muscles, I, I guess, had grown or my historian's brain and, and skills had grown over those 20 plus years. So, yeah. so it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, let's get into the book a little bit then. And let's just start by setting the scene. I mean, this is in environmental history, so let's talk about the environment. Where is the Elkhorn River? You mentioned a little while ago that it is purely a prairie river, that it's entirely contained on the plains. But where exactly does it flow from and to? And what kind of environment is created by the Elkhorn? The Elkhorn starts about in the middle of Nebraska, but in northern Nebraska, and it's entirely contained within the state. Uh, and I don't know that I could give any landmarks there that a lot of people would be familiar with. It, it's a lot easier to understand that it empties into the Platte River just outside of Omaha. So it starts north-central Nebraska and flows sort of east southeast towards Omaha, so it runs sort of diagonally from north-central Nebraska uh, down towards east-central Nebraska, where Omaha is. And the more I got into the river, the, the more I found out that even though it's contained within a state and contained within the Great Plains, it, it, the environment that it flows through changes significantly, and, and the river itself has different characteristics and, and really a different personality depending on where you encounter it. Uh, there's an upper basin, which uh, is where the headwaters are, um, and it's flowing through a region called the Sandhills in Nebraska, and it's kind of, it's more of a stream, I guess, than a river, um, and there, in the, the, the banks of it are very broad, and uh, there aren't any steep banks, typically, so imagine a big flat place like the plains, um, there is enough of a depression so that you get this stream flowing through it. Um, and it's, I would say, a little gentler up there and smaller. And as it flows down towards Omaha and picks up more water from tributaries and it goes out of the sand hills and into um, a sandy loam type soil, uh, it's got a little bit steeper banks and it picks up speed and it picks up and it gets bigger and broader and wider, which is typical for rivers. Um, so that's uh, where it is and roughly what it's like. Uh, it's all within the Plains region. In the western or the upper part of the basin, there's a lot of cattle ranching that goes on now, so grasslands. Uh, originally, the lower basin uh, was also grassland, but that has a lot of it been turned into uh, farming, especially corn, soybeans, and, and some other crops. So they're really massive farms uh, in the lower basin. And there's also some, uh, while there's ranching in the upper basin, you come into the lower basin, there are some places where there are feedlots. So there's sort of mixed agricultural use. And there are, I can't give you the number, but there are a number of small towns and even a, a 
fairly major city in the basin. Um, and a lot of those are located right on the banks of the river. And that's something uh, I'm going to drop and plant the seed. We'll come back to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, the biggest city in the basin is the city of Norfolk, Nebraska, which is uh, north northeast corner of the state. And I think the population there is around 20,000. It's one of the bigger cities in Nebraska. Um, but a, a big city in Nebraska, I guess, is relative. One of the one of the trivia facts they gave me when I moved there to go to grad school was that on football Saturdays, the stadium would qualify as, I think, the uh, <laughs> third largest <laughs> city in the state after mm -hmm. Omaha and Lincoln. Um, so that's what the environment's like and, and where the, the river flows. I'll admit, and I, I like to think that I have at least a, a passing grasp of, of geography, but I'd never heard of Norfolk, Nebraska before uh, reading this book. And then I read a whole lot about Norfolk, Nebraska. <laughs> Sure. And if you ever get through there or anybody else listening to this and are interested, there's um, a, a real nice road that runs basically along the river basin, along the mm -hmm. river from Omaha up to Shadron, Nebraska. That's just delightful. Uh, and it goes through Norfolk and there's a terrific museum in Norfolk. You should stop at the uh, Elkhorn Valley Museum, which is, is where I got some of the research for the book. Why does the Elkhorn flood so regularly? And indeed, does it flood particularly regularly compared to other rivers? I, I don't know. I didn't do a comparative analysis of um, how often or uh, even how regularly it floods. Um, it does flood. And the way I came to think about flooding as an act of a river is that it's something that, as far as I know, all rivers do. Maybe maybe not all of them. But... Uh, where the river lives, um, where its bed is, um, you can count on it being there, I guess, most of the time. But then there's uh, the next stage as you go uphill from the, the core, the center of the, the uh, channel, where you've got um, floodplain. And that is, at least as I came to think of it, a place where the river, it's not there all the time, but it can almost be expected to be there um, from time to time, depending on rainfall and other things that happen in the basin. Um, so I didn't find uh, a pattern. It's not like the Elkhorn floods every year or every five years reliably, but it does flood. And <laughs> one of the things that was um, a challenge with this book was, um, one, I tried to locate where the floods were because it grew out of a, a flood history in my master's thesis. And it was pretty regularly. Somebody who grew up in the basin, if you were born in the basin and, and spent your life there for, say, 75 or 80 years or more, you'd probably have three or four major floods and I don't know how many minor floods. So it's, it's, it's not anything you can count on uh, with any regularity, but you can count on it happening. And you can expect to have it happen more than once or multiple times uh, in your lifetime. And... And in Nebraska, and, and for this river in particular, it's, I think, got a lot to do with um, the topography, the fact that the, the river basin is broad and, and shallow, and uh, there are some pretty severe weather events that happen in the central continent weather pattern, climate pattern. Um, and when, uh, and there are two different ways usually that the, the Elkhorn floods. One um, is in the wintertime and a function of uh, 
say the ground being frozen in the basin and ice clogging part of the river channel and in the spring if they get a particularly warm spell and a lot of the snow and ice that's on the ground melts it will overwhelm the carrying capacity of the channel um, and that gets complicated frequently by ice in the river even if the river's moving and there's some ice in it it'll build up at bridges or bends in the river and the, and the ice will create a dam and then force water up out of the channel and into the surrounding uh, territory and then the other one is uh, so and that usually happens maybe march april when when things are melting and the other most frequent um, time of flooding is maybe may and june maybe some into july uh, where you get summer thunderstorms and if there's been a particularly rainy period in the basin uh, and the, the soils are saturated and you get a big thunderstorm there's no place for that water to go other than you know, it can't seep into the soil and it will you know really flow quickly into the river and then the river will uh, exceed the capacity of the channel to contain it and that's when uh, you get the river coming up out of its uh, channel and into the floodplain. So in a nutshell that's um, <laughs> an explanation of um, how and why it floods uh, and I can't help you the regularity question is kind of tough, um, but it, it, it does flood fairly often by my reckoning and uh, occasionally pretty dramatically. And people have been putting up with floods in the Elkhorn for a very long time because people have been living by the Elkhorn for a very long time. So what is the long human history of this river? Who lived on it before American conquest and how did they make their lives along its banks or further inland for that matter? Gosh, uh, it wasn't the, the heart of a homeland for any of the historic tribes that I've located. The, the, the Pawnee um, Indians lived in part of the basin some of the time. The Omahas, um, some of the Dakota and Lakota uh, tribes passed through it. But people have been in the basin, or at least there's archaeological record of human inhabitants. Oh, gosh, I think. The number was 10, 12,000 years uh, going back. Um, and typically, thinking about this up until um, Americans and Europeans started coming into the valley and settling it, for the most part, it seems like uh, the indigenous people who lived in and around the river mostly stayed up away from it. Uh, it was rare that they would put a village um, within reach of flooding. Um, and most of those peoples, or at least in the time that I looked at, were either nomadic or semi-nomadic. Um, some of them had uh, year-round uh, villages where they lived, but those generally were up out of the floodplain, and I didn't find much evidence that uh, they were impacted by flooding. Um, so, <laughs> sorry about that. Repeat the question, if you would. Who, who lived well, there for how long? I was just kind of generally curious because one of the, the things you emphasize at the beginning of the book is that, you know, people have lived along this river for a long time. And uh, I was just curious who had lived on it before American conquest. How did they make their lives along the river or along its banks? Or as you say in the book, maybe further inland, what has the role been historically prior to American conquest of the river in the lives of people who lived, who lived around it? Right. Uh, thank you. <laughs> for getting me back on track. I need another cup That's okay. of coffee. There, there, there's a lot. It's not a particularly long book, but you cover a great deal in this book. So I totally understand. Um, so one of the things, and let me get back into that, um, that line of thinking. 
one of the things that I found in going back to the project was some sources that I hadn't spotted the first time around uh, related to uh, either pre-contact or very early contact um, records of American Indians living in, the, in, in and around the Elkhorn. And that was even though some of the tribes, um, many of the tribes were nomadic and semi-nomadic, um, occasionally they would have pitched a camp within reach of the, the river. And in some of the winter counts I found, um, and some listeners might not know what a winter count is, but a winter count is a type of a calendar kept by some plains tribes. And typically it was done on a bison hide and it had a pictograph for each year. And it would typically start in the center of this bison hide and then work in a spiral uh, pattern moving from the center out to the edges of the, of the thing. And every year, whoever was keeping this winter count or calendar or history uh, would choose a particular event to commemorate. And that would serve as uh, a symbol for that year and a memory device for telling the oral history of the, the people. And I located some winter counts from people who lived in that area. And there were a few years where they noted, um, say that a flood had happened and flooded out four teepees uh, of a particular band, or that uh, a number of people had drowned in a flood for some reason. So they, there was a sense of, I guess, flooding disaster that predates uh, Anglo settlement of the basin. And another thing that I had not thought about partly because in the first incarnation of the work I was interested mostly in flooding, was that there were some benefits. Uh, and this is, probably should be obvious if you stop and think about it. It's like, what, what good is the river to um, folks who live along it? Uh, I imagine for a source of drinking water and, and cooking. Uh, but one of the surprises I found in the winter counts was reference to um, bison apparently trying to cross the river when it was frozen and falling through and getting stuck in the river and in some cases frozen in. Um, and some of the Indian peoples who lived near the river uh, could use that sort of like a deep freeze. And they found where these bison had fallen through. And uh, when they got hungry, they could go out and they would cut <laughs> some of these frozen bison out of the river and haul them up and, and cook them. So it was sort of this um, windfall out of the, the frozen river. So that's a way where I was getting in the second incarnation of the book away from just flooding and disasters to how did people live with the river? How did it help them? How, what things did they do to the river? And, and, and this goes back into, the, I think, late 1600s, maybe the 1700s, where those, those episodes were recorded. Um, so it, was, it really turned out to be a, a lot more interesting story and more involved story than I thought the first time around. Yeah. And, of course, in the 19th century, Americans do conquer the Great Plains. And after this point, how did, in your words in the book, how did newcomers reimagine the Elkhorn? When did Americans begin settling towns along the river? And how did the lives of the people who lived there, and how did the river itself change as a result? <laughs> That's a big question. I'm going to try to keep that all straight in my mind. It, it is a big question. If I, need, if, if I can I can remind you if necessary. I think my yes, questions and, are maybe a little unwieldy today. <laughs> that's okay. And, and I'll, as you've seen, I'll, if I get sidetracked, I'll ask for help. Um, one, of the big sh one of the big shifts came with um, overland traffic and the development of Nebraska. And some of the earliest um, white or American settlements in the basin started in the 1850s, 1860s. 
And in this respect, I think the Elkhorn was similar in a lot of ways to, say, the Platte River Basin and the Platte Valley. The Platte turned into um, one of the major highways across the country. It's still one of the major highways across the country. It was um, the, basically the route for a, a big chunk of the Oregon Trail, and that's partly river topography, partly plains topography, but it was a real handy way for wagons to travel west along the banks of the Platte. And not too long after uh, the Oregon Trail, the Elkhorn served a similar purpose for settlers who were moving up into that part of Nebraska. So they would be coming out of Omaha, uh, travel a couple miles west to where the Elkhorn was, and then they could follow sort of a natural highway up the Elkhorn River Basin, right alongside the river, up to northern, northeastern Nebraska, north central Nebraska, and I'm going to get a little bit ahead of the settlement story here. Um, it was not just a highway for these overland settlers, but as they moved up the basin and founded towns, that also, uh, a couple decades later, was where railroads expanded, and like they did, uh, like the Union Pacific did across the Platte Valley, um, some railroads went up the, the Elkhorn Basin and connected north, eastern, north central, and then northwestern Nebraska to the hubs in uh, Omaha and other places. And then uh, a couple decades after that, that's where uh, some of the paved roads followed. I think the road I want is US 275, which I had the pleasure of bicycling years ago. Uh, and that too follows along the river and along the railroad tracks. So there's been this transportation corridor that followed along uh, the river base, uh, the banks, um, much like happened in the Platte. So there I got a little bit ahead of what I think your question was. It's like, how, how did things change once, um, I'm going to use short-term white people, showed up and started settling the basin. Uh, so what they did, first of all, was follow that natural highway up from the Omaha area into northeast and in north-central Nebraska. And, and as they went and they were looking for town sites, part of what they were interested in was water power for milling. Because once farmers were in, uh, and, and growing things, they needed to be able to process their crops, and uh, they were looking for grist mills. Uh, one of the earliest things set up at a lot of these town sites were sawmills, and uh, at the time, the best option for power was water power, and it was a bit of a challenge harnessing the Elkhorn and its tributaries, because unlike, say, uh, the rivers I knew in Ohio that had mills, or where I've seen them in New England, it didn't quite have the topography and, and the, the, the depth, and there were very few falls <laughs> that could be harnessed uh, to power a water wheel. But there were certain sites that were better than others, and in those places the, the river or its tributaries could be dammed, and you could set up basically a mill pond and get a little bit of a, a fall of water. And that's where they would put a sawmill and maybe a grist mill, and then those mill locations frequently were the, the, the nucleus for settlements, uh, because a lot of business had to be done there. So you had places like West Point, which is a small um, city along the Elkhorn or village. Uh, Norfolk started as a mill town, and there were a number of, of others as well. Um, so that is part of what I had in mind, where I talked about people coming into the, uh, the basin and reimagining it. It wasn't just a highway. It started off as a highway, um, and it wasn't just a place where you might camp alongside of it. Uh, for part of the year or all of the year and, and hope to cut some frozen bison out of it for a food supply, it became a place of 
permanent year-round settlement where the people uh, depended on the water power to be the engine of their economy and the engine of their uh, settlement. And as they were doing that, my reference to building mill, uh, excuse me, mill dams and mill ponds, it's like they started engineering the river in it, to an extent that had not been done by anybody up until that point. And that also had the um, unintended consequence, I guess, of um, concentrating capital and building and assets along the river banks because they had to be close to them for the water power. But that also put them in jeopardy of being damaged by floods. And it was uh, sort of a regular occurrence from that point on. Uh, so I think I want to take a deep breath there. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and it's, this has started getting us into the, the point of reimagining the Elkhorn, but I, I don't want to go too far down um, a route without making sure I, I cover some ground you're interested in. Well, that's perfect because that's actually my next question. Because as much as the, the Elkhorn itself gets reimagined after American conquest and American settlement, uh, as you kind of indicated, the nature of flooding changes too. And the meanings that people ascribe to flooding also changes. So why is that the case? Why do floods become more destructive? And how do American settlers respond to flooding on the Elkhorn as, as you very, very well put it, as capital becomes concentrated along this river? Um, in Gosh, <laughs> how how'd they respond? Um, they dealt with it, for, for one thing. And it's kind of, uh, there's a, a counterexample that I, I didn't mention very much in the book, maybe just in passing. Uh, the town of Niobrara, Nebraska, was located on uh, a tributary of the Niobrara River. And it flooded and flooded. And eventually the, the town people decided they'd had enough and they moved the town to higher ground. I didn't find many cases of that happening in the Elkhorn Basin. So people either thought it was worth dealing with or it was too much trouble to move away from the river. Um, but most of the original town sites that, that I'm familiar with pretty much stayed where they were. And because they'd put uh, homes and buildings and uh, farms in, in harm's way, essentially, started responding to it sort of on a... a, a well, the first phase I think I, I label in the book as a defensive phase, where they would put up uh, dikes or levees along the riverbanks and hope to contain the river and keep it away from uh, their buildings. And that went on uh, into, into the 20th century. Um, eventually, they took some more offensive uh, measures to try to change the river. And, and some of these start on a small scale in the late 1800s, but they certainly um, get more aggressive in the 20th century. And what I mean by more offensive things, and this is rather than trying to contain the river or keep it away from uh, buildings, um, try to change the river itself. For example, uh, dredging the channel to make it deeper so that it could hold more water, or straightening uh, the river channel so that it doesn't have so many bends and the water can move more quickly downstream. Um, so the, in, in some ways those efforts helped uh, protect property and helped reduce flooding, but in other ways I think even those had some unintended consequences in that the, the faster moving water 
in the straightened channels would sometimes do more damage during floods than if it had been allowed to meander or, or spread out as it would naturally. Um, and then I think in a lot of ways the, the climax of the offensive phase of trying to deal with floodings came maybe in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and part of what happened, and I'm forgetting part of the story as I go along here, so a lot of this was done sort of on an ad hoc piecemeal basis by, by towns. And so the city of Norfolk would deal with the Elkhorn in its jurisdiction, and then they would sort of shape the river so that the water would go past there and downstream, but then the next town down would have to deal with it. And they might put up levees and so on. Um, so it was done piecemeal on a local basis. Uh, by the 1940s, um, there were some particularly bad floods. And that is when the Army Corps of Engineers got involved and came in and did uh, a study on the river. And they made some recommendations about some particularly aggressive cha changes uh, to the channel and to the basin, um, a lot of which didn't get done because they would have been very expensive to do. And from the Corps of Engineers' point of view, the ideal situation would be to treat the entire length of the river um, so that there wouldn't be these piecemeal uh, modifications to it. And you could really do a, a systematic full basin treatment to to mitigate flooding, uh, but it was cost prohibitive in terms of doing that. So I've kind of run through, I, I think, uh, most of what your question was, but I want to stop and, and see yeah. if I missed something or if you'd like to redirect. Well, I'm just curious about the floods of the 1940s because you spend a, a fair amount of time on that era of flooding in the book. And in particular, uh, you know, if for no other reason, you should acquire a copy of the book, listeners, because there's some amazing photographs in, in, in there of the floods from the 1940s. But I'm wondering about those floods in particular. Why were those years particularly uh, destructive as far as flooding goes? Was it just sort of a roll of the dice? Those just happened to be bad years for flooding. And... Um, what was the result of all the destruction? How, how did cities and towns respond? And you touched on that a little bit, but I was just hoping to zoom in a bit more on that decade. Sure. I think a couple things were going on that led to that series of floods, and it was 40 and I think 44 uh, at that point was the worst flood in the history of the basin. Um, for one, the population of the, the basin had grown steadily. Um, so from the settlement period in the 1850s, 1860s, uh, through the 1940s, the population had grown steadily. A lot of those settlements had probably hit their peak, if not around 1940, just before then. Uh, so there was a lot more of value in the basin. And say compared to uh, the, the first small towns where there might be a few buildings, now there were more people, more buildings, more assets, and in harm's way. Um, so it's kind of a, a, a matter of uh, having more chips on the table, I guess, to think in, in terms of poker. Um, there was more stuff that could be harmed. And then in the 19, and also the river had changed. I mentioned a minute ago how it had been channelized and levees put into some places. Uh, so the, the river itself had been changed. And then in 40 and 44, there were some particularly bad storms. The rainfall was uh, high and they were particularly wet years. So it was kind of a, ah, what's the word I want? Uh, the, the perfect storm in a way. 
of more things of value having been placed in the basin and then some particularly wet and, and stormy years uh, with particularly bad floods. And so the flood damages were astronomical in those years. And, and the people uh, in the basin started petitioning more to get help from outside sources, if not from the state, from the federal government. Um, so that's, that's part of how the Corps got involved. And also during these years, I think it was in the 30s, um, the Corps' mission got changed. It, originally, the Corps was uh, aimed at working on navigable rivers. And as more people were calling for help with floods, uh, the mandate of the Corps changed so that they would get more involved in, in flood control rather than just working on uh, navigation. So that's part of what changed their jurisdiction to be able to come in. Uh, plus, there were calls for help from people in the basin and I think from politicians in, in the area. So you get that particularly uh, tragic set of floods in 40 and 44. And then the Corps came in and did a massive study on it. And that was one of the richest resources I found for uh, putting the book together, was that they had hearings up and down the basin asking people, uh, what kind of damage have you had? What would you recommend? Um, what's your experience been like flooding here? Uh, and they recorded all this stuff. So it was this real terrific treasure trove of documents um, that the Corps put together. And then as, a, as, a, as an arm of the federal government, they had the potential with that kind of um, money and technology behind them to come in and do some massive changes to the river. Um, but uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, as they did the studies on this, the, the, the cost, and I don't remember the numbers, but it would have been prohibitive to do this um, to the basin it would make more sense and part of the reason the Corps chose the projects that it did and, and say for example would do massive projects on the Missouri was the cost-benefit analysis made that attractive or worth doing and as they ran the numbers on what to do in the Elkhorn Basin uh, there just weren't enough people and assets there to, to justify the output of doing the projects that they did. I am anxiously awaiting the day when some uh, enterprising environmental historian writes the definitive history of the Army Corps of Engineers, because your book, among the other really interesting things that it does, it really drives home how important the Army Corps is in making these kinds of decisions about what, you know, the modern American environment will look like and the, the, the human environment, the, the, the relationship between humanity and the environment in the United States is so much shaped, especially in the mid 20th century by the Corps of Engineers. Your book does a really good job of underscoring that fact, I think. And I'd like a larger study on that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and it would be, would be would be nice to do. There's a great project for you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got enough on my plate with one book, let alone a second project yet. Right. So let's move ahead a bit in time and tell us what the river's flood history has looked like more recently. Since the, the mid-20th century, have people's relationships to the Elkhorn changed much? Have there been more floods, more devastating floods? How have things looked like over the course of the latter half of the 20th century moving into the 21st century? Uh, well, <laughs> bottom line is the river keeps flooding. It, it hasn't stopped. Um, I think the, the last flood I deal with in, at any length is um, 2010, um, and there was a particularly bad one that year. Some people claimed it was as bad as or worse than the flood of 1944, but it's kind of hard to compare because things change so much and, and trying to figure out um, 
what's the benchmark? Is it the dollar amount of damages? Is it how high the, the floodwaters registered on the different things that are used to measure that? Um, but uh, for one, it's continued to happen, and so it continues to be a fact of life. I think one of the things I found, I guess, most heartening about what has been going on recently is that there's been a, a realization both in places in the, the Elkhorn Basin, and I've, I've seen that in, in other places around the country, and it, it's happening around here where I live in Texas, that there are certain flood-prone area, flood areas where uh, local governments have essentially given up on trying to rebuild, and they're telling people, you know, no, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to buy you out. You just need to move out of here. Um, and that's starting to happen, uh, especially around Norfolk, where some properties are in, in a flood zone are being abandoned um, because it just doesn't make sense to keep rebuilding in a place that is going to get hit again and again by flooding. And around here, uh, my in-laws live near a creek, and in their subdivision, there were five houses in the lowest part of the subdivision that flooded and flooded and flooded, and finally the city bought them out, and they just tore the houses down and turned it into green space. And that's part of what's being done in other places, including in, in places on the Elkhorn. So if there's one takeaway that you hope people come away from this book understanding, what might that be? In your conclusion, you talk about what the, the history of the Elkhorn tells us about human relationships to rivers and the environment kind of more generally. And I'm wondering if, if, if that's sort of the, the takeaway or if there's a larger point that you hope readers come away understanding from your book. Wow, good question. It's a um, question that usually people express frustration at because it's not an easy question. I, I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think for me, and, and what I really wanted to get to by the end of it, was it, and it, it, in some ways, one of the frustrating things about doing this project was, uh, and this is sort of like playing Monday morning quarterback, if you're a football fan, an NFL fan on Monday morning and say, boy, you know, uh, Patrick Mahomes should have done this yesterday. Um, but looking at all these floods in a compressed way, uh, I've been working on this for, I don't know, 20, 20 some odd years, but I've got 150 plus years of Elkhorn history compressed into that time. And to go through the historical record and, and if you're looking for floods and say, okay, there's a flood and they did this, there's a flood and they did this, there's a flood and they did this 10, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, you almost um, want to bang yourself on the head and say, hey, <laughs> look, <laughs> look what's going on. Why are you doing this? Why, um, why do you keep letting this happen? Um, and I think it's partly because in the moment you don't necessarily realize it. And even though the newspapers in the basin that reported on that would frequently refer to other floods. Uh, if you get 10 years, 20 years between major floods, I think people in a way kind of forget about it. But then for me, where I'm sitting here reading maybe in one week about the flood of 1940 and a week later the flood of 1944, and then the next week I move along and I'm doing 1978 or 1993 or 2010, and you, you kind of see this pattern. It's like the same, and I, I refer to this at one point that, um, in the book that's in a way it just seems like it's one damn flood after another 
Um, but that is, I guess, the, the benefit or the curse of a historian where you can see this long duration of things um, in, in very close proximity that is not evident, I don't think, to somebody up front living through it at the moment. Um, so it's a windy way of getting to a response to your question. I think what I'd like to see for people, whether they're in the Elkhorn Basin or the Platte Basin or Columbia, Missouri, Mississippi, whatever, that rivers kind of have a life of their own. That one of the things that rivers will do is expand. They will use their floodplain from time to time. To live with them, I think you need to expect that. And I think, I, you know, in my perfect world, if I could have people who live with rivers do something, it would maybe be back off and give them the space to do what they do rather than try to impose uh, a will on them and, and force them into things that they don't want to do or can't really be reasonably expected not to do. So maybe uh, take a deep breath, back off, and, and get out of the floodplain. But that's, that's easy for a guy sitting in a history office in Fort Worth, <laughs> Texas to say. And it's a different matter for people who've got lives um, and generations of lives and, and lots of money invested in projects where they are. But th there's, there's my two cents. The rivers are going to do what they do. Um, and it's kind of, uh, it might be a good idea to, to back away from them and, and let them do that. And then finally, this book has been out for a couple years now, came out in 2018. What have you been working on in the interim? Do you have another project that is coming down, uh, coming down the river, so to speak? <laughs> I, hope I couldn't so. help myself. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm taking some of the, the lessons and themes that I picked up doing this book, and I'm currently working on an environmental history of Fort Worth and North Texas. I haven't quite figured out the parameters yet. Uh, it might be just the county where Fort Worth is. Um, for people who don't live here and might not be familiar with it, there's Fort Worth. We're not far from Dallas. And really, uh, over the years, uh, they've sort of grown in, <laughs> metastasized, grown into uh, this giant metropolitan area that we around here called the Metroplex or the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. I think probably at some point I need to deal with that entire entity. But I'm starting off with the environmental history of Fort Worth focused on water. Part of that is uh, going to deal with the Trinity River, which flows past Fort Worth. And in a lot of ways, it's the Trinity is similar to the Elkhorn in that it is a minor river. It's not navigable. Uh, it does flood. There was a horrific flood here in 1949 that led the Corps to come in and put in a massive levee system um, and, and to really manipulate the river so that it has protected Fort Worth. And that has been pretty successful over the years. And there's a terrific um, hike-bike path along the top of the levee. And I was just out on it earlier today exercising. Um, so I'm going to try to get at the history of Fort Worth from the perspective of water whether it's uh, the city's relationship with the river or, um, and I, I shouldn't say or, it's going to be and, how has the city uh, de developed its own water supply and what has the history of water usage and water pollution told us about uh, Fort Worth? And, and one of the places, I, I don't want to go too far off this because I haven't really developed it yet, and I know you're not 
asking me a lot about this other project. But one of our main uh, tourist attractions here is, is the stockyards area, where there used to be two giant uh, meat processing plants owned, operated by Armour and Swift. Um, and when those things opened, it was a, a wonderful day. Many people in the city celebrated it because it meant economic development, jobs, and Fort Worth was growing and becoming more important. Um, but almost immediately, they uh, had an impact on the, the river system here because a lot of the animal waste uh, from the living animals and waste from or byproduct from the slaughtering and packaging of the animals ended up in the water supply. And there are some just horrific stories about what happened downstream from where the packing plants were. So that's going to be part of that upcoming story. And it's going to be, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the, the, the meat apocalypse of the Trinity River, among other things. <laughs> yeah, that's an article title right there if I've ever heard one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like an amazing project. I'm really excited to, uh, to, to, to read that somewhere, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. I feel like I'm working in, in slow motion, but yeah, yeah. someday. Yeah. Well, when, when it's done, we'll have you back on the show. I'd love it. Todd Kerstetter is a professor of history at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. His latest book is Flood on the Tracks, Living, Dying, and the Nature of Disaster in the Elkhorn River Basin, which came out in 2018 with Texas Tech University Press. Thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk with me, Todd. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.